Hello, my friends. It's Mark from the No Wristbands crew. It's an exciting time to be this month's No Wristband guest, Bob Mayer, the former Chicago-based music writer, currently living in Memphis, recently contributed liner notes to the Yankee Hotel Foxtrot Wilco reissue. Bob's best known for his New York Times bestseller, Trouble Boys, about the replacements, and he was kind enough to sit down with Papa and myself to talk about all the work that went into writing the book, his biggest surprises coming out of it, how he got involved with the Yankee Hotel Foxtrot reissue, and what it's like winning Grammy for writing liner notes for a band that actually never had won, won one on their own. Uh, I got my copy of the Yankee Hotel Foxtrot reissue early, and I've been digging in uh, to all the multitude of different components with it and been reading Bob's work, and it's it's an outstanding supplement to the record. So I think everyone will really enjoy this episode. So as always, please make sure you follow us on Twitter and Instagram at No Wristbands and check out our website at NoWristbands.com and make sure you're checking out Dig In, which is our bi-monthly uh, music roundup about upcoming releases, upcoming shows, and forgotten records. So uh, sit back, relax, and enjoy. Welcome to No Wristbands. We drink for free. This is Papa Novak with uh, my co-host Mark Joyner, and hey, we hey. are super excited today to have Bob Mayer, the uh, author of Trouble Boys, the true story of the replacements, um, and he's done a lot of other things too. And we're going to start to talk some of those uh, uh, things. Uh, how you doing today, Bob? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me, guys. All right. Uh, we also would be remiss if we didn't call out the fact that you wrote for the reader for a couple of years. I was. I was the, I guess, the music critic, whatever, music section columnist mm-hmm. for about uh, two, almost three years, I guess. Yeah, beginning of 04 to the end of 06. Mm-hmm. And then uh, and then I moved on to the daily paper in Memphis um, for uh, the next, whatever, 15, 16, 17 years it's been. But um, but yeah, no, I had a great, great few years in Chicago and that was really when the reader was rolling and, you know, still kind of the heyday of the alternative weekly press and all that stuff. And we had yeah. kind of a juggernaut juggernaut going in those days. At the <laughs> there. Uh, where in the city did you live? I lived on a kind of near north side in Old Irving Park, actually, coincidentally, at the time, just a, a block or two from uh, Jeff Tweedy. Uh, so <laughs> no I way. was kind of, yeah, I was kind of, a, I, I haven't been back to that area so much in the last few years. I haven't really been anywhere the last few years uh, since <laughs> the pandemic, but it had changed quite a bit. You know, I think, uh, Old Irving Park kind of come up a little bit. I mean, it was a still mm-hmm. nice area, but it was, uh, it wasn't like everything, you know, in Chicago and everywhere. I think, you know, every even mildly desirable area has come up and become more desirable. So I think, it, <laughs> yeah. you know, it, it was a, the last time I was there, maybe it was probably again for, to do something with Jeff uh, for uh, for a Mojo magazine and probably 2019, I think. And uh, and that's the last time I visited. And it looked a little bit different, a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, some newer, newer buildings and shops and restaurants, sure. and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, but I, I was pretty fond of that area, you know, it's kind of, it's, it, it was uh it was its own little oasis in the city. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, love that area. Yep. We're not too far from there. No, we're not. I uh, always say, I, I should say there was a McDonald's there on uh, uh, Irving Park in, I can't remember the cross Elston. street we were at. Elston. Uh, I mean, I don't at, know. Well, I don't know if it was <laughs> no, Elston. It was, it was just it was right by Old Irving Park in where we were, which was not, you know, a few blocks from Addison, just right by the, the, the L stop. But mm-hmm. it, it's I, I, the last year I was there and I stopped eating McDonald's after that. But it was like the greatest McDonald's in the world. Everything looked like it was from a commercial. <laughs> it was so perfect. And, uh, and then I moved to and then I moved to Memphis. 
happens. And I, I literally haven't eaten McDonald's since. It's been there you 16 go. years, but that was like a, the magic McDonald's. And, and well, there's just uh, too much barbecue down there. <laughs> that's right. That's eat right. It, you know, uh, my dad lives in Oxford right down the road. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. There you go. Uh, so let's talk about the replacements. Uh, sure. First of all, I have to, I'd be remiss if I didn't say uh, it's an amazing book. We actually cool. we interviewed uh, Bob Nisanovich for Pavement. And we actually sent him a copy of it. He's like, oh. love the replacements. Never read the book. And I was like, I'm sending it to you. So yes. Oh, that's it's out cool. There yeah. You there somewhere. Yeah. Funnily enough, I saw something and I posted it. There was an interview that Stephen Malkmus did with, on, you know, some like thing in New York that was filmed or on YouTube. And and he sort of out of nowhere mentions the book as though he had read it. So I, don't nice. know, I, I guess making its way through pavement, pavement yeah. band circles. So, you know, happy Indeed. to help. Uh, yeah, thank so you. <laughs> when did you become familiar with the replacements? Like what was your relationship with them? Like prior to being like, Hey, I'm going to write a book about them. Oh, I was just a fan, you know, for many years, I had the kind of great accidental experience of first encountering them, you know, without any context or knowing who they are, just as a young kid, I was 11 or 12 when they did that Saturday Night Live appearance, <laughs> now infamous Saturday Night Live appearance, and I just saw them, yeah. yeah, I just happened to be watching the show, you know, as a kid, whatever, like say 12 years old, and my grandmother was babysitting, I remember just sort of watching it, probably because of Anthony Michael Hall was in the cast that year, and I was a <laughs> fan of Anthony Michael Hall, and, uh, you know, I saw this band, which for me at the time, you know, in the eighties, there wasn't a ton of like live rock and roll programs on TV. It was a lot of, you know, it was the video era, it was a lot of lip syncing mm -hmm. shows, mm -hmm. solid gold, that kind of thing. And they were just so unlike anything I'd ever seen in terms of how loose they were and raw and kind of, you know, careless and just sort of, it was not a, a well-presented, polished act. And so I just remember, whoa, you know, seeing that, of course, I didn't know any of the drama that was going on backstage that I detailed in the book, but <laughs> right. um, there was some, something about that that sort of grabbed me. Uh, and then it was probably another year or two later, we, I grew up in LA, we moved to Arizona. I was like, you know, hitting my teenage years. I went to high school and college uh, out there and uh, got a hold of police to meet me probably a year or so after it come out, um, just going to some record stores. And uh, so that was the first record I actually heard was Please to Meet Me. And then, you know, was a fan for many years. I got into music journalism and uh, really in the late 90s is uh, when I, you know, graduated college and started working in, in the business and became a music editor out in Phoenix and then various other places. And I so I had a relationship with the band in that I would interview Paul or Tommy on their various solo or post replacements band projects and got to know some of the people associated with the band managers and uh, Peter Jesperson, who was their mm -hmm. original manager. And uh, so sort of had developed a relationship amongst, you know, the people in that circle. And around 2006, Six, I guess it was. Yeah, 2006, there was a festival in, uh, uh, well, actually, going back, I, I was in Chicago, and uh, the late lamented Harp Magazine asked me to go interview Westerberg uh, for the release of his Folker album. So I guess this would have been the end of 05 when I was mm -hmm. in Chicago. And so I flew out to Minneapolis. That was the first time I'd interviewed in person. I'd done some phone interviews with him. And we had a, just kind of hit it off, had a really good, long conversation uh, it was around the time he was promoting that album. He did, wasn't doing a whole lot of interviews. And as I was to say now, in hindsight, I think, you know, he was raising a young son at that point. His kid was maybe four or five and his father had just died. So he was in a pretty reflective mood, as you would be kind of mm -hmm. between those two kind of moments in your life. And whatever happened, we hit it off. So a year later or so, um, I kind of had the first inklings of wanting to do the book and in and i'd moved to memphis and started working at the daily paper there as a music critic and i sort of approached paul and his camp and approached tommy through peter jesperson and 
and sort of got the ball rolling on getting their participation and saying, hey, here's what I want to do. And it still took another year, year and a half by the time, you know, kind of events and we went back and forth between the guys. But finally, um, I, I got them to agree. And in the interim, I'd done some liner notes for the reissue of Tim and yeah. done a, a, a big feature for Spin on when they put out their album reissues in 2008. So it was kind of a series of events over a period of a few years, uh, really starting actually when I was in Chicago and, and then mm -hmm. leading into when I moved to, to Memphis and started the book in 2009. And then, of course, I thought it'd take a couple of years, but it took about six <laughs> years, seven, seven years to finish it. And some of that was sort of extended because they reunited as, as I was finishing yeah. the book. So I kind of right. wanted to see how that was going to turn out, whether they were going to do a new album or whatever, you know, just to see what the epilogue would be. And of course they kind of just stopped very abruptly uh, mm -hmm. in the reunion at the end of, uh, or summer of 2015. And then the book came out a few months later, six months later or whatever. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so yeah. And then in, in hardcover in 16 and then in 17 in paperback and audio. And so, and then ever since then, as you know, as I can see behind you, uh, we've been working on a series of, yep. uh, you know, reissues and, and, yep. and archive projects that's uh, sort of an outgrowth or an offshoot of of doing the book and the research so that's, that's how you win the grammy story. yes i and yeah and then so we did a couple of uh we did one pro project really just to kind of test the waters in 2017 it was an archival live album of the band playing actually right right around the time of the saturday night live appearance in february of 86 at maxwell's in new, in new jersey that was a record yeah. store day release, right? No, no, that was a, that was a general release. That actually, oh, okay. and that was a, that, that was the first release we did, okay. and it was a wide release on CD and LP, and yeah. uh, it did really, really well. It was like a you know a number one vinyl album, and it was on the charts, and it was you know whatever like their highest charting Billboard album. Did really well enough that we could kind of be more ambitious with the next one and really launch what. I had always secretly hoped would be a series, but we didn't know if there was going to be you know, <laughs> the demand for it. Uh, sure. And then the next project we did was Dead Man's Pop, which was kind of a, a remix uh, or a completed, you know, a mix by the original producer of the album, Matt Wallace of Don't mm -hmm. Tell a Soul, and then a live show and various odds and ends. And, and that's the project that uh, I won a Grammy for, for, for best liner notes, but um, really proud of that because it really is kind of, you know, it, you know, you kind of opportunity to sort of rewrite history and kind of make that record mm -hmm. sound probably the way it should have. And then since mm -hmm. then, we've done deluxe editions of Please to Meet Me and Sorry Ma and a various other kind of offshoots of those things with record store, day, uh, you know, one offs. Mm -hmm. And uh, hopefully we'll do more. We're kind of trying to figure that out. But uh, yeah, so it's been a, a replacements filled life since 2000, <laughs> 2007, 2008. Yeah. So. Uh, was it always important for you for it to be like, I don't, let me use air quotes. So sorry, the <laughs> audience is listening, uh, authorized biography by them. Like, was it important for you to get their buy-in to do the book? Yeah. I mean, the book is kind of the best of both worlds. It's not technically authorized, but it's, you know, essentially with fuller, you know, Yes, their consent. Yeah, is their involvement. You know, I wanted them to be on board, but I didn't want them to have control over what I was going to write or what <laughs> mm -hmm. I was going to say. So, right. You know, you know, which is a rare kind of thing. Usually books are either unauthorized and they're not, in, the people aren't involved and, you know, you're writing from the outside or they're authorized books or collaborative books. And then, and originally, you know, Westbury had proposed, he said, well, let's not do a band book. Let's just write my memoir. Uh, but, you know, I knew that, I wanted to tell a bigger story and I knew he, he wasn't going to really have the patience to probably follow through with kind of the work that needed to be done <laughs> right. uh, on that. So, and, and so, so yeah, I was very fortunate in that, you know, I had uh, Paul and Tommy and, and Bob's family. Chris was not as involved uh, on the front end, uh, or, or he was a little bit on the front end, not so much all the way through, but, you know, I was able to get through other than him, everybody, you know, Slim, Slim's family, mm -hmm. um, 
and Peter Jesperson, all the people at Warner Brothers. And I had access to, to all the band stuff, both at Twin Tone and archives and the Warner Brothers archive. So it was, you know, basically for all intents and purposes, you know, authorized to have access to everything and mm-hmm. access to everyone. But, you know, I wrote the book that I wanted to write and I didn't have to really, you know, sort of um, sort of toe anybody's line or agenda. And, and I think the book benefits from that and credit to the band, you know, credit to the guys, because they just said, Paul, in their first conversations, talk Talking about the book, he said, you know, if you're going to do this right, there's only one way to do it. And that's honestly, and it may or it probably <laughs> won't make us look very good at times. But, mm-hmm. you know, you shouldn't bother if you're not going to do that. So I sort of from the outset, I had kind of the sanction from Paul to kind of pursue it the way I wanted. And, yeah. and, uh, and you know, I did interviews with those guys multiple times over many years and their families and everybody, you know, involved in the story. So I was very lucky in, in that and uh, and that they were willing to be so honest, you know. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. Yeah, and I mean, they were drinking so much during this. How could they remember the <laughs> stories anyway? Right? Right, right. Well, you know, there was always the, that. That's always sort of countered by the fact that because the, none of them could drive, uh, they they always had to have somebody to get them to the gig. So they yeah. had to be somebody uh-huh. around. Remember, so some um, reliable narrator. Yeah, right? so some reliable narrator. So you know, and you know, any book is kind of a, a triangulation of the truth. It's not one person. Yeah. You know, the truth is a pretty subjective thing. And so right. uh, that's how I really kind of pursued it as, you know, not telling it from the band perspective, of course, but, but, but from everybody in that story. And so you get kind of more of a kaleidoscopic sort of version of, of, of all the sort of views of what was going on internally and externally with the band. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it, 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 it's so fun to hear all the stories, you know, the drunken escapades, et cetera. I mean, you could have written a, you know, an 800 page book that just had those. I'm sure there had to be so many things that you had to leave out, but you really, you know, more so you wanted to get into like what made the band tick and, and the heart. Yeah. And, and, and what was going on around them. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the stories, the anecdotes, the kind of wild antics, I mean, that's all, that's the stuff everybody knows. And I, and of course you have to have some of that layered into it. But for me, like at the outset, it was always a question of like, okay, yes, they were drunk and crazy, you know, self-sabotaging and everybody writes that story, you know, 10,000 times, but nobody asked the question why, what was behind that. And so that was Mm my sort of approach to it was there has to be more to this story or what the, the, what and the why rather than, you know, what just the kind of tall tales and, and, and kind of, folk stories and myths surrounding the band. Um, sure. So, so yeah, so that was kind of the, the challenge from the outset and part of why it took so long because uh, it, I wasn't trying to kind of just write an anecdotal or an oral right. history or a kind yeah. of mm-hmm. celebration of the myth, but really just trying to understand who these people were as, as human beings right. and their experience. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely that narrative quality for it. It's like, I don't want to toot your horn too much, but it's probably it's like all right. One toot of, away. Not, toot yeah. away. Okay. The, it's it's my favorite music biography I've ever read. Oh, and, thank you. You know, on this bookshelf that you can't see here, there's plenty. Uh, yeah. But I, I think there's just so much heart. There's heartbreak. There's, there's like you feel what those people are going through, and then at the yeah. end, you want to go through rehab too. It's the only book <laughs> I've read that I was like, I don't think I could drink for a while. Well, uh, you know, I'm lucky. They're a pretty ripe subject. I mean, I always say that, that most rock and roll books. Uh, you know, I mean, there's there are exceptions. There's the kind where you're writing about an unknown or a really underrated person. You're trying to make a case for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but most rock and roll books are about people who are successful and the replacements are kind of straddled both those worlds They're, you know, to most people, they're kind of unknown, but they also did sort of, they were part of the popular music world for a, you know, for a good decade or more. Um, and so there's something unique about that story in that 
they were part of the popular world, but they were part of the underground, but they never really succeeded on a mass level. And so they're more relatable and their story is more human, you know, like most rock and roll stories. Yeah. They have drugs, they have heartbreak, they have this, they have that, but at the end of the day, they're millionaires and they sold millions of records and everything's fundamentally okay. Sure. Um, with the replacement yeah. story, I think you get, get a more unique, they're more uniquely positioned as a band in terms of their experience over those, you know, 11 years, 12 years, they were together and, you know, in the indie world and on the major label world and in a changing kind of music scene, uh, you know, kind of through the, through the big eighties into the alternative era, the early nineties. So it's, uh, you know, I was just lucky that they're a band that touches on a lot of things within the music industry and within rock band experiences. And then of course, you know, on the human side and the human level as well. So yeah, in the, uh, uh in the intro of the book, I think you wrote um, they had become legends without ever uh, becoming stars. And yeah, uh, that kind of that kind of sums it up with them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it is a unique. And again, some of that is because I think there are there aren't many bands. I mean, certainly nowadays, but even from that era that um, at the same time are, 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 you know, mythical and romanticized and lionized in this kind of you know, almost folkloric way, the way the replacements were. And yet you don't really know what was behind that. So that's why the book mm -hmm. is kind of, it's, mm -hmm. it's, 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 it's about building myths and trying to sort of secretly, you know, penetrate those myths at the same time, I think. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you an inside baseball question. Sure. So this book took you a long time to, to write. How, how do you start writing a book like this? How do you know when you have it all done? Like, what is the, the, the process like of like, collecting all these resources yeah. and going doing all this research well it was my first book so i did a lot of things wrong mm -hmm. but um <laughs> but you know i mean basically i wrote it the same way i would write a, a you know extended magazine article it's like for me the research is always key you know interviews and background <laughs> and all that kind of stuff when you're writing a book or when you're avoiding writing a book you tend to over research which is you know probably <laughs> what i did and uh -huh. also i was also, I didn't know the whole story. I mean, you know, with a lot of things I write, you kind of know the framework. Um, but with this story, there was a lot of stuff that really hadn't been explored, areas that hadn't been explored. So I was kind of going into it dark. And so I was fumbling around in the dark, you know, at, at times uh, until I could figure out, you know, kind of, okay, this is the direction I need to go or this is where the, the real gold is. Um, so, yeah, I spent probably, you know, a couple of years doing the main interviews, research, putting that all together and then transcribing it all myself. Yeah, I mean, yeah. thousands of hours, which is, yep. you know, a work in and of itself. Um, and then, you know, as and then I started, you know, there was a point where I was like, God, can I write a book, you know? Uh, and so I actually I think the first part that I actually sat down and wrote was the Bearsville chapter about the making of first attempt of making Don't Tell a Soul, mm -hmm. because that was a completely unknown part of their history and story mm -hmm. that had never really been you know, almost not written about at all. And I thought, okay, if I can write this and I can get this, then, you know, whatever. So I really start towards the middle end of the book was the first thing I hmm. actually wrote. Um, and, uh, and then once I got that, I thought, okay, now I can do the book. And then, you know, I, I, I jumped around uh, mostly, I think I finished probably everything from the band forming to the end of the band. And then I went back and did the first, you know, the family stuff up to the formation mm -hmm. of the band. Partly because of research stuff, because some of that stuff was harder to pin down because it was sort of pre-Peter Jesperson and pre-people being around the band. So I had to talk to a lot of people and figure out a lot of, you know, stuff that's just kind of hard to pinpoint before there's any press or, you know, attention on them or anything like that. Um, and then obviously the epilogue came last because we were sort of waiting to see what happened with the reunion. And, you know, mm -hmm. the epilogue got cut a little bit more than I would have liked. And if we ever do an anniversary edition of the book, I'd probably expand that part. Um and then, you know, the process of writing is, is rewriting and editing. And it was mm -hmm. a much lo longer book. 
And, uh, you know, I, maybe I cut it by a third, but I didn't really lose anything. Essentially, it was just more stories, more quotes, that kind of stuff. I'm, you know, at the end of the day, I'm pretty happy with the book as much as, you know, anybody's happy with anything. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a, a perfectionist like me. But, um, but yeah, I managed to, I think, get the whole story in, you know, and, 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 and kind of feel it all the way through. And, and also the way the Bob, that Bob story carries through, even after he's out of the band, mm-hmm. I'm able to come back to that various points and obviously the book sort of ends with his passing and then the epilogue continues picks up after that mm-hmm. um, so so yeah it was a it was a, a process of a lot of research and then sort of getting to a point to write and then for me it came in kind of stages of finishing because of you know trying to crack the code on the last few bits of the mystery or whatever that's that's really interesting all of it but the that you started kind of in the middle that was more right. a test for me to see you know sure. Uh, like, can I write something out of whole cloth that, you know, from an area, area and a period that hasn't been written about mm-hmm. at all, at all. And, and, you know, when I got that, I have to say, I was like, oh man, you know, like, cause I'm a fan first. I was like, shit, if I knew this stuff as a fan, I'd right. be really excited. I'd be really happy, yeah. you know, if I was reading this. And so I thought, okay, I'm on, I'm on the right track here. And kind of that's how the rest of the, the book went. Cause it was, you know, which is the one advantage. I mean, sometimes, um, you can tell when an author really doesn't like his subject that much, you know, or loses interest sure. in it. And that was one of the good bits of advice I got early on uh, from a guy named David Ritz, who's a very famous writer and, and a music writer and biographer and collaborates mm-hmm. on all these famous, famous with famous artists and stuff. He said, you know, whatever subject you pick, this was before I'd actually do the replacement book. He said, make sure you're going to be interested all the way through because there's nothing <laughs> worse than reading a book by an author who loses interest in his subject yeah. three quarters mm-hmm. of the way in. And, right. you know, for me, Fortunately, for one reason or another, I, I still, you know, because I do the liner notes to all these packages, uh, these box sets we do, and I still bizarrely find myself still fascinated by the replacements, even though at this point you'd think I'd be sick of mm-hmm. it. But, um, <laughs> so, so that, that kind of has helped, you know, kind of, and that helped with the book is just like I was coming at it from a, from a fan's perspective in yeah. terms of my interest level. Sure. Um, and, and I could tell like, yeah, this is, this is, this is going to be something people who are at least at least fans of the band are going to be happy with. And then that was on one level. And then I also wanted to write a book that sort of was bigger and transcended just the fan base or music fans and write mm-hmm. a more kind of human story. And so I think I did that as well. So it's kind of like, say, the best of both worlds, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, absolutely. I think, I think the uh, I think in the acknowledgments, you said something about you interviewed 230 people or something it, like that. It was that. actually more than that. I, okay. I lost, at a certain point, I lost track, but it was yeah. two and three hundred people. I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and certainly it was important to have have uh, uh, Paul and Tommy in there. Um, but for me, like I, I have minimal um, musical talent. The person that I most wanted to be was Peter Jesperson right. um, and, and, and not for the bad parts of his life, but right, for, right. The, for the cool stuff that he did. So yeah. how, how key was it for him to be involved in this and how oh, many great um, stories did he have? Well, I mean, it, it, it book wouldn't have happened. I wouldn't have got Tommy to agree to it without Peter and the mm-hmm. book wouldn't have happened without Peter and the, and the whole twin tone archive and all the stuff he's collected. And, you know, Peter's working on his own book uh, about his life, you know, of which the replacements is just one small part, you know, mm-hmm. kind of his life and career. So which is going to be incredible. It's going to come out, I think in a year or two. Nice. Uh, and um yeah, no, I mean, I can't, I mean, Peter was as valuable to the book as he was to the band by which, you know, neither project <laughs> would have existed without him. <laughs> I mean, I always say that if it hadn't been for Peter coming along uh, when he did in the band's story that, you know, 
they wouldn't have lasted six more months. And I think it's, you know, and certainly they wouldn't have had the career they have, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the, the great things are always a re- result of luck and destiny or some combination. And I think, you know, it was both of those things, both for Peter and for the band to sort of find each other. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, I mean, he was totally instrumental in, in, in the, in the book coming out and for me being able to sort of get to the starting gate with it. Cool. Uh, did you feel like did did anybody in the band's reaction to the book surprise you, or were you like <laughs> having studied them enough? That's exactly how I think they would react <laughs> to reading this. Well, I mean, uh, Tommy, I, you know, Tommy asked early on. I mean, I I gave them like an opportunity before it was published to say, hey, here's you know, do you want to see anything? Not that I would necessarily change anything, but if you want to <laughs> preview it, I sent uh-huh. copies of Tommy's uh, ex-wife. Uh, and who, you know, kind of, he's still very close with them, get together and all that mm-hmm. stuff. Uh, and it was with them at the time, their replacement. She read it. Um, I obviously, of course, Peter read it. Um, Tommy asked for some of the early chapters just to see how I was handling the, the very kind of, you know, sensitive family stuff with regard to his family. Mm-hmm. Um, I think his, his sister also read it. Um, and everybody was okay with everything. And of course, I sent the book to Paul, um, towards the end of before the gal, you know, right before it was coming out, I sent him a galley. Originally, it was going to do like a blurb for the cover or something funny and he was just going to do it without even reading it but then he wanted to read it so i fedexed him a copy of the book on a friday night um he got it on a saturday on a saturday morning he got it and then by saturday that saturday night early sunday morning at 3 a.m i started to get calls from him and i was like oh gosh <laughs> anyway he left me a message and it was a little weird so i called him the next day and couldn't get to him so i'm like sweating man like this book's going to go to print like what's, uh-huh. what's going on here and then he called me and we and we had a really good talk for about an hour hour and a half and he had you know very interesting he had questions about well, why'd you put that or why didn't you include that or oh, you know is this or that you know kind of odd some odd questions but so you know he's a reader of histories and biology, right. he's a big reader so yes and then at the end of it he said well you know i and you know and i understood you know if somebody FedEx me a, a sort of basically a dossier of my life in my twenties <laughs> and I had to read through it. It would kind of throw me. And he said, yeah, I was just thrown reading it. It was so crazy, but then uh-huh. you know, he's very complimentary about it too. And then, you know, he said, I, I read it twice. I read it, uh, you know, all the way through. And then I read it backwards just so it would have a happy ending going backwards. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then, uh, uh, but, uh, but yeah, and that was it, you know, and then, uh, uh, you know, I, and I've, you know, I've, I've heard from him periodically and obviously, obviously deal with him and his management. Yeah. No, I mean, I, th- yeah, I mean, I think, I think a lot of things with Paul, I think it, you know, if you'll notice, he hasn't really done any interviews since the book came out. I think that part of his life between mm-hmm. the reunion and the book mm-hmm. is over and he's, he's essentially, I think, retired from music, uh, as far as I can tell. And, and, you know, he's into painting and doing other things with his life. And so, you know, I, in a way, it's kind of, I think it was the period at the end of a sentence, you know, for, for him in terms of the replacements. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe, who knows, I say that and I'll go do a reunion tomorrow. But, um, <laughs> but, uh, but, but, but yeah, so, so yeah, so there was definitely some people I, I, I sent it to in this sort of circle. Uh, Jefferson, as well, Michael Hill, their longtime A&R man, uh, Paul's manager and stuff. And, you know, response was great. And fortunately, I mean, if the book had been a disaster, but fortunately it was received very, very well, got a ton of press, you know, it was a New York Times bestseller, all that stuff. And I think that right. kind of success, you know, in a way validated their, if nothing else, validated their faith that I was going to do a good and serious yeah. job and that I did do that. So, right. um, but you know, nothing's ever easy with the replacement. <laughs> they're not, they're not, they're not, you know, Paul as a rule and, and even Tommy, they're not sort of look back sentimental type people, right. um, which is, 
in one sense hard because it's like, you know, they're not going to do that and sort of shower you with like, boy, thanks for writing this great book. But they also have given me the sort of thing with the book and with the the reissue project of like, okay, well, we trust you as a custodian to take care of this kind sure. of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that's basically what's happened. So, you know, if not, which is, a, is an honor because, you know, as a fan, like all the stuff that we put out, it would have been a shame for it to sort of just like stay in the vaults forever. Uh, mm-hmm. And those guys are not in and of themselves. They're not the type of guys who are going to be, you know, you know, so there's some artists like Elvis Costello who's like reissues catalog four times. He writes the liner notes. He, picks the bonus tracks, you know, not everybody's like that. And those guys definitely aren't. So, you know, that's been handed to me and, 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 and to their management and to me and to Jason Jones at Rhino is the, my partner in the A&R department over there. We've done all this stuff. So, you know, it feels, uh, if nothing else, it's sort of like all of this, like I say, has been an outgrowth of the book and even the reissues. It's like stuff I was able to hear and have access to. And I just thought, Mm -hmm. man, I shouldn't be the only one to to Mm -hmm. have access to this. Let's present this and tell this story in a way that kind of continues continues the understanding of the band and the appreciation of the band and the legacy of the band. And so that's kind of what we've done. And I think, you know, that wasn't my intention with reissues, but it kind of came naturally as a result of doing the book. And so I I take it all as one kind of big, big effort on my part to, uh, to sort of, you know, like I say, maintain and, and boost the legacy of, you know, one of the yeah. great bands. It's uh, a love letter. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you feel any sheepishness that you want a Grammy and they never did? <laughs> <laughs> well, it does say, it does say on it, it does say the replacements in, in parentheses. Okay. okay. It's, got my, it's got my name. And, you know, they were not, they were actually nominated for Grammy on their last record in a short lived, uh, in the first year of the short lived alternative album category. Yeah. And I think they lost to Sinead O'Connor or, or Edie Bacall mm-hmm. or somebody like that. But, um, but yeah, I mean, my hope was that we would also, particularly with Dead Man's Pop, that we would get uh, nominated for a, best historical album uh you know grammy mm-hmm. and then that way that i think the band would get one too but uh you know like i say i got the replacement's name on a grammy i'll, I'll uh, you know i threatened to send it to paul but <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't i didn't want it to come back broken or something yeah that's so, get spiked uh, uh, i think it, i i think when i when i won it i texted his manager and i said you know and then he texted it to paul and paul said typical you know so, <laughs> so uh, awesome. but uh, ho- hopefully we'll get another chance to to kind of get get a nomination maybe that honors the band as well and mm-hmm. you know, in, in full yeah. and proper so mm-hmm. uh did do you feel like your relationship to their music changed at all through all your research did you feel like a deeper appreciation for yeah. it to maintain the same level no 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 i you know you think i'd get sick of it but actually right. i think knowing a lot of the stories and knowing the context of what was going on with the band enhanced my appreciation for the music um, and I, that's my favorite kind of compliment. You know, I think the book was a, maybe a cold splash of water for some fans, you know, who had kind of romanticized this, this fun loving bunch of guys and really didn't know that there was maybe some darker aspects of the story mm-hmm. as there is in any, you know, kind of story. And some people were like, Oh, I wish I hadn't read that. Or wow. I, I, mm-hmm. I liked reading it, but it was, it was so hard at, at points. But my favorite reaction that I ever see is like, yeah, it was hard. It was crazy. I liked the book, but also now I really appreciate the music even more. Or I have a greater appreciation mm-hmm. of the songs or, or the, the songs mean more to me knowing the context mm-hmm. or the real life inspirations or all that kind of stuff. So sure. for me, it's, yeah, I, it very much so like, 
like, you know, listening to, to especially stuff that's, you know, is about the band, like they're blind or Portland or, or any of a number of things, you know, uh, when you really know kind of this, the, 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 this, the backstory of it, to me, it's like, wow. And just the fact that they lasted as long as they did. I mean, that band shouldn't have lasted, you know, 12 months, much less 12 years. And, and, and they put mm-hmm. out, you know, eight great records and this incredible legacy. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, when you know the, what they went through and what, how, how stacked the odds were against them, um, that they, that they succeeded and lasted as long as they did, you know, Succeeded in their own way and lasted as long as they did um, really as a triumph. So yeah, no, a short, short answer is it makes me appreciate it more. <laughs> awesome. Uh, what's the most surreal moment since this book has come out for you? Is it being on the New York times bestseller list? Is it, I mean, that was name a, checking the book. That was a surprise because uh, it was, you know, I mean, it's, it was, a, it, you know, the New York times developed these multiple lists of New York times bestsellers, but even so, I mean, for a band that didn't sell any records to be on that. And it was like, when that came out, it was like with, you know, the Tina Fey book and a William Shatner book and the car- couple of books by the Kardashians. And here's the replacements. <laughs> it was on the celebrities bestseller list, which I don't know if they're <laughs> celebrities, but, um, but, uh, but uh, that was kind of weird. And then I, yeah, I've been very lucky the reaction to it from people. I really, you know, kind of a- a- admire a lot of people in the comedy world. Bob Odenkirk uh, was a mm. big replacements mm-hmm. fan. Sorry, mm-hmm. Ma is one of his favorite records. He's just talked endlessly about it and promoted the book and just mm-hmm. said some really nice things. And I got to meet him and hang out with him. And, you know, I've known him a little bit anyway, but um, uh, Joel Hodgson from Mystery Science Theater 3000, like, you know, there's all these people, you know, it's, it's really weird. The replacements had a huge, huge uh, group of fans in the comedy world. And so I got to meet a lot of those people. Some of the kids in the hall have commented on the book. Mm. So it's like my yeah, favorite, you know, comedy stuff uh, between mystery science kids in the hall and Mr. Show. It's like all those people love the book and love the band. Um, so that's been pretty cool. And um, yeah, I mean, yeah, just the, the fact that, you know, it's, 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 it's been received well and by, by a lot, a lot by musicians, you know, uh, and people who, cause I think musicians, you know, anybody who's been in the, in a band and in a van know, can kind of appreciate it, even if you didn't make it to a major label or kind of, you know, opening big arena shows or whatever. I think the, the replacement story cuts a pretty wide swath of, of uh, you know, amongst people who kind of know the band life, both the, the good parts and the bad parts. Uh, and, you know, some band people are like furious when they read it. They're like, oh, I wish I had the chances these guys threw away. But, um, but, <laughs> right. but yeah, no, musicians, musicians in particular, uh, have been very cool. And, you know, of course, yeah, you know, like tons of people have been nice about it, whatever film directors and quasi celebrities. And I saw not too long ago, I was reading this, uh, I think it was Esquire story and it was about Keanu Reeves. And they're like, Oh, Keanu Reeves, he doesn't have time to read books, but he just tore through trouble boys. Is that a friend had given him? <laughs> there right? you so go. Just, you know, just weird Hell shit like yeah. that where you're like, yep. Oh, but that's a cool thing about, you know, writing a book that, you know, kind of does well. It does, it does travel. And, and, you know, like the band, the book has had a really good word of mouth, um, mm-hmm. you know, even though it was successful at the outset, you know, mm-hmm. five, six years, and people are still kind right. of discovering it. I mean, I can tell in terms of the numbers and things like that. So that's always nice yeah. that the book has a has a good lifespan, you know. So. Yeah. yeah, it's got that staying power. Yeah, uh, I think that's so, mostly due to us recommending it. So that's it. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We'll, we'll pat ourselves on the yes. back. There you go. Uh, so placements are from Minneapolis, but they have yeah. like, several big Chicago moments, like maybe not big in the moment. Right. But like they played their last big show there at the yeah. taste and yeah, know, they, they, they reformed and played at riot fest. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think it's just like 
happenstance well, you, or no or no like i mean i think chicago has always been a great music town i mean they first started going there and it was one of the first places they visited outside of the immediate you know minnesota mm-hmm. wisconsin uh area um and they think the first shows they went there were with you know kind of under the uh, ages of husker du mm-hmm. husker du uh and then of course they became very popular there and were playing you know on their own cubby bear metro and then jump into like you know whatever aragon and 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 then obviously they did their final show in their original sort of iteration uh, or original kind of run in 91 fourth of july at that taste show and of course they had a couple very famous moments with xrt on the air mm-hmm. uh, and um uh, and so yeah i mean chicago was really the the nearest big city you know to minneapolis but there was a great pipeline there for them and and they always played i think to generally played very well there and it was yeah. a regular stop and they played right. they played the metro the week of saturday night live they did a one-off show right before the saturday night live oh, performance wow. so yeah so it figures pretty you know prominently through their through their history and, and they always liked it. It's a, it's a replacements kind of town. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? They, yes. they weren't always, they weren't always crazy about LA. Yeah. They liked New York, but, but I think Chicago was much closer to, you know, yes. kind of Midwestern hearts, you know? Yeah. So it was always, always a good, uh, good, good gig there. So I have uh, to, uh, I have to hype my, uh, my first replacement show. Oh, yeah. It was July 84. Mm-hmm. And uh, we went to see uh, REM and dream syndicate at the Aragon. Aragon, and, right, yeah. and then the same night we went over to the cubby bear and it was del fuego's opening up for uh for the replacements right and, uh wow. pete buck came over he was standing at the bar with us yeah. and what a great show yeah those were you know they, they definitely like i think there was a lot of cr- cross-pollination in, in some of their chicago gigs too where they would people mm-hmm. would be in town or getting up and play with them and all that kind of stuff uh so yeah no definitely chicago is you know in in, in replacements history it figures you know especially oh you know all through the years not just early on but all through their career mm-hmm. yeah i got to see the one and only time i saw them was on the reunion tour they played at the riv yep and uh it, it was one of the only times i've ever been in a show i was like up in the balcony and i was sitting next to this guy and he like sized me up, you know, I'm, I'm on the younger end at this point. I'm probably like sure. 29, 30. And he's like, so, uh, you're a replacements fan, huh? I was like, yeah, like wouldn't be here otherwise. And he's like, yeah, okay. Um, can you, I've been a fan since the eighties. Can you imagine how excited I am? I'm like, yeah, probably more excited than me. He's like, what do you think? It's like, what do you think Slim Dumlop's doing right now? I'm like, well, he's not here. Like he was like testing me to see if I was right. a real fan, you know? And I was just like, oh man, dude, I just want to see the show. Yeah. The replacements fans can be, uh. They can be, I'm sure. Yeah. Possessive. Well, Chicago yeah. audiences are like that generally anyway. Yeah, in my, right. in my experience. Yes. So. Yes. I've done it the yeah. other way for Wilco shows. No, I'm just <laughs> yeah. You got to earn, you got to earn it here. Yeah, yeah. that's true. I yep. did my best. And then, yeah. then it was one of those shows where Paul wasn't feeling it. He just like pulled the plug. He's like, oh. he got to the first encore and he's like, no, nope. all right, we're good. We're out. And you're like, <laughs> all right, well, I guess that was it. <laughs> right. But you know, that's, that's the experience you go for. Right. When right. that's good, if they were just going to be a sterile. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you never know what you're going to get with them, even on the reunion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, and then of course you also have the uh, famous Al- Albini quote. I used to love these guys. Now I hate this guy. Yeah. Steve has a, had a funny relationship with them. And, and, you know, I talked about that in the book and I interviewed him for the book and, right. you know, he had his own ideas which weren't necessarily well, which weren't clear because no one really knew what the band wanted. He thought they were like some big sellouts or whatever. It's like, mm-hmm. let me tell you, nothing could be further from the truth. <laughs> right. Um, but, but, you know, that was also a lot about sort of indie rock politics at the time, which, you know, again, is one of the things I try and contextualize in the book because replacements really were on the leading edge of uh, being signed to a major label and kind of sort of crossing those worlds, you know, moving from this, what was by then this real kind of defined 
uh, American indie sort of movement and scene. And they were never, never really part of that. That's the funny thing is, you know, they were, of course, included in the Michael Osrad book, you know, Our Bank Could Be Your Life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and people, I, I love it when I say, when I see people say, oh, you know, the, from the DIY, you know, generation, the replacements, and it's like, these guys didn't even drive to their own gigs. They had roadies <laughs> roadieing for them, you know, gig number two. Right, they, right. they, they never were, they couldn't do yeah. it themselves. I and mean, they were, they were in that world, certainly. And they were part of that, you know, with Twin Tone and Jesperson, they were part of that circuit in that milieu, but mm-hmm. they themselves were never that. And Paul was certainly never that. No. So, um, you know, so it's a kind of, they were outsiders even among the outsiders as i put mm-hmm. it in the book and 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 because of that i think some people misconstrued or didn't understand him even within those kind of indie rock circles and, and steve was probably one but um but he always makes for an entertaining copy and so that absolutely was good to have his you know and and his his he did represent a, a legitimate perspective on the band in that world at that time so that's why i included him in there but uh but yeah it's a it's an interesting yeah another chicago element in there mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah uh, so sh- switching gears to uh your more recent work so you're you're doing the liner notes for yankee hotel foxtrot's reissue how did you get tapped to to do that did you pitch them did they approach you how did that happen uh no actually so wilco has you know they've been doing reissues of their albums proper the last few years the person who's in charge of that is a woman named cheryl pavelski who's a kind of uh, real great uh catalog specialist she was uh, worked at uh, concord she was the head of rhino for a period of time mm-hmm. uh, I, that's how i've known her for gosh almost 20 years now uh and when she was at rhino i did some work for her including she was uh, in charge of the 2008 so oversaw the 2008 reissues of the replacements catalog uh mm-hmm. we did the i did the big star box set with her i did liner notes for that um and so i've known her and then she's moved on to her own company on war recordings and they've done some uh Minneapolis stuff that did some soul asylum reissues that did reissue of bash and pop anyway she was tapped some years ago to kind of be the Wilco's kind of catalog person this kind of the same way I am for the placement stuff um, mm-hmm. and so she contacted me when they were going to do this Wilco box set of Yankee Hotel Foxtrot that's obviously coming out uh, later this month mm-hmm. um, and so she approached me about it and she said you know we really want to do a, it's going to be a really big package in terms of the audio we want to do a really big package in terms of the liner notes um you know, the design is going to be fantastic. Lawrence Azarad, uh, Lawrence Azarad, who designed the original album and, and, you know, he's going to be doing it and he's won a couple of Grammys for the work he's done for Wilco. And so she really wanted something, you know, really kind of substantive. And she was going to do a kind of round table discussion with, you know, Jeff and, and, uh, Glenn Kochi and, um, and uh, Jim O'Rourke as part of the package. So she said, we need a kind of set of narrative liner notes. And, you know, normally it would be like the, the least, uh, my, the thing I'd least want to write is, is about a record that's been analyzed to death the way mm-hmm. that Wilco record has. But again, I kind of took the same approach of, yes, we know this version of the story. What don't we know? And so I kind of wanted to get deeper. And so I did just interviews with all the guys, uh, some of the you know production people involved. I was able to get, uh, thanks to a great guy, a journalist named Robert Lorzell, uh, a bunch of mm-hmm. uh, unpublished Jay Bennett interviews. So I was able to bring Jay's story really kind of to the mix. And it's a really a fascinating tale of, um, you know, how the record came about and why the band was falling apart and why the business stuff happened the way mm-hmm. it did. And, you know, obviously, again, tons of people have written about it. Greg Cott wrote, a, you know, great yeah, Wilco bio and covered mm-hmm. that. And there right, was a Sam movie. Jones documentary. Sam Jones yeah. documentary. But I think we, you know, like all things, and, and as with the Replacements book, you know, the benefit of time uh, and perspective that comes with time really can kind of shape uh, and, and offer new insights. And I think that's what I was able to do with these notes is, you know, enough time has passed from the record 
you know, the band and its status is so different than it was, you know, at yeah. the time, mm-hmm. um, you know, the years since Jay's passing have kind of conveyed a perspective too, I think. So everybody's right. able to kind of think and talk and reflect on it in a, in a different way, um, maybe in a more honest way, or, and mm-hmm. I was able to kind of synthesize a lot of stuff. So I'm really actually very proud of, uh, of the notes. And it's the longest thing I've worked on. It's about 15 or 16,000 words. Mm-hmm. Um, probably one of the longest things I've worked on since the book. And um, yeah, I worked on it uh, most of the latter part of last year or the fall and winter. And, and so it should, and again, it's coming out and I haven't seen the finished product yet, although I've seen the, the tests of it and it looks amazing. It's just a breathtaking, breathtaking mm-hmm. set. So yeah, so it was a very cool thing to be a part of. And thankfully Cheryl was kind enough to ask me to, to uh, participate and sort of took a thing that I would have been dreading, you know, kind of having to write about a record that everybody's talked about, written about for 20 years. But uh, I was surprisingly pleased with how it came out and how it came together and all the stuff I learned, you know, in, 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 in sort of trying to approach it in a new way. Right. The story of that yeah. record, you know? Yeah. So like, how did, did you have an idea like, oh, I'm going to approach it like this? Or you're just like, let me start talking to people. Yeah, I, I really want to start talking to them. Again, I knew because Jay, Jay, much like Bob Stinson was not present as a voice in the story. Mm-hmm. I knew it was important to get his perspective and to understand him a little bit more in the process because, you know, he was co-writing the songs. He was engineering the album. He was trying mm-hmm. to mix it his mix didn't work he got you know aced out of the band and you know he's the central figure any way you slice it up and i wanted to understand the dynamics of his relationship with jeff both personally and creatively and how that impacted Mm -hmm. the album that's one part of it and then of course all of it you know kind of goes back to jeff and a lot of a lot of it actually you know the story goes back to jeff's childhood and to his relationship with jay farrar and in in, in Uncle mm-hmm. Tupelo and how that led into wilco and how those forces in a kind of roundabout way ended up shaping what happened you know not only on the first couple of wilco records or first few wilco records but also on this record um so you know like my my sort of theory about a lot of it is is that you know records don't sort of come out of great records anyway really great records don't just aren't born in a vacuum there's a thread that goes into them that can go all the way back you know and in this case it really did both to sort of you know the the, the totality of all of the lives of the people involved in making it so i was kind of exploring that and it's a really you know just there's a lot of action on this record you know it's like the drummer you know the Ken leaves and I talked to Ken Coomer, Ken leaves, the coach, comes in, you know, mm-hmm. you've got sort of Jay moving out of his really tight position with the band and Jim O'Rourke yeah. coming in and the battle over the mix. And then you've got the whole record company story, but you know, even beyond that, just sort of getting into the roots, the sort of creative and the psychological roots of the record and understanding where the band was at that time. I think I did that a little bit more thoroughly and thoughtfully because everybody was able to kind of, you know, now take a, take a look back and, and, yeah. and, in a more, you know, kind of, I think, insightful way. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's really, it's really, I, yeah, I'm very happy with it. I haven't looked at it in a while. I'm, I'm kind of waiting to get the, get the finished thing so I can kind of look at it and absorb it with the pictures of the package. <laughs> sure. But, uh, but yeah, at the end of the day, I was, I was, I was pretty pleased with it. Cause I think it's, uh, you know, it's hard to, to kind of do a new version of a, of a story that you think has been told a thousand times. Yeah. I think, mm-hmm. sure. you know, we were able to, particularly with Cheryl's portion where she's kind of doing a more of a technical round table with the, with O'Rourke and, and Jeff and Glenn, it's, it's really a, you know, works together nicely as a, as a, as a set. Awesome. Yeah. It's, it's so interesting that like time heals all wounds, but like still scarring for some of them. We saw uh, pitchfork did a screening of I'm trying to break your heart mm-hmm. at the music box last year. And we went and Glenn was there and they interviewed him afterwards. And he's like, wow, like that's the first time I've seen it since I saw it when it came out. And like, uh-huh. you could tell he was still processing and like, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I, you know, there's like there is a kind of level of uh, you know emotional processing that goes on, and at certain yeah. points, you know, particularly when things are raw and you just split with the band or when Jay just died, I think. Right. You know, like I say, that's that was again. It, it relates totally back to the replacements book. If I had approached them at any other time, you know, I would have got a different response, mm-hmm. or they wouldn't have been ready to do it. As it happened, those guys were just at a place and a point in time, and had enough distance mm-hmm. from the breakup of the band, yeah. the death of Bob Stinson, to really be willing to sort of dig in and 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 you know be unguarded and be honest, and also maybe more thoughtful and understand themselves and even their their sort of motivations at the time better than they would have you know, if it had been a little closer to the event. So, so yeah, it's interesting kind of how those, those two projects in a way sort of mm-hmm. uh, parallel, you know, sure. parallel each other. Did yeah. anything you, you researched or discovered about Yankee Hotel Foxtrot in the process of writing this alter how you perceived that album? Was it an album like prior to it doing all this, or was it safe to say like, this is an album you, you held high regard for? Yeah, I held high regard. I, you know, I, the funny thing is, I don't know, still know if it's actually my favorite Wilco record, but I it certainly, mm-hmm. it was, it's their most important record. And I was actually, uh, a funny story is when I was in, I had just moved to Seattle, become a music editor at the Village Voice owned paper there. And when, uh, I'm trying to break your heart came out and, um, the, the documentary and I was doing an interview with Elvez. He was in, uh, he was in Seattle at, the time kind of doing this uh the kind of like Cirque du Soleil thing where he was the ringmaster so I was interviewing him for a story and I was having breakfast with him and and I was getting ready to go to the screening of I'm trying to break your heart and uh, he said oh can I come with you so I, my memory of I'm trying to break your heart you mentioned Glenn's <laughs> is watching it and looking over and Elvez is sitting next to me uh, so um so uh <laughs> Robert Lopez but um and it was funny because you know he had been in, in a pretty fractious punk band uh the Zeros back in the day and so he you know it was interesting to hear his thoughts on the film you know kind of the the politics and band dynamics him assessing mm-hmm. it live you know uh, uh with me in the theater but um yeah no i mean i i experienced that record and the importance of that record at a, 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 in real time and, and saw them quite a bit on that tour actually mm-hmm. when they did the four piece uh, and actually that one mm-hmm. of the, the uh, one of the bonuses in the package is a live show where it's the four piece wilco which was a very you know relatively short-lived version yeah. band with Leroy Bach and I also talked mm-hmm. I forgot to mention I in the liner notes I talked to Leroy Bach who as far as I know has really never really done uh, you know much in terms of interviews so to get his perspective mm-hmm. and he was somebody who knew J- Jay going back years and of right. course was yeah. very instrumental yeah, yeah. in Wilco uh, for, for a period of time so uh, very interesting you know to kind of get his thoughts and he's a he's a very interesting dude you know yeah. very un- uh, inscrutable in some ways but, <laughs> but but once I got talking to him you know really good dude and and, and, and was kind of a key to understand a lot of what was going on there because he had such a unique perspective yeah. um, mm-hmm. so sorry i completely bailed on your question but um no, no, uh, but uh but yeah no it was it, it was it, that was an important record and 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 so i think you know it, it looms large i think in terms of you know maybe one of the in terms of rock records or whatever you want to call it post-rock records it you know that has a, a story and a place that uh you know, I don't think records can have that impact anymore. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Uh, and it was right. really kind of a harbinger of, you know, the end of one kind of record business in terms of, and again, it relates to the, you know, they, they got the record rejected by Warner Brothers because Warner Brothers had these different people in. And, right. you know, the Warner Brothers of old that I was writing about in the replacements book was kind of the, this different world. And here's this, mm-hmm. the beginning, you know, the kind of the last golden period of that world. And here's kind of the the real end of that world that Warner yeah. Brothers. So there's, again, there was a lot of through lines, a lot yeah. of, uh, um, yeah, nothing shocked me so much, though. I think one of the the nuggets in the in the book that was interesting, or in the in the liner notes that's interesting, is 
that uh, Bob Rock, you know, the Metallica producer, and yeah, yeah, yeah. producer, he was a huge Wilco fan. Apparently, had some kind of Wilco cover band in Hawaii, where he <laughs> uh, and he was really okay. interested at one point in working on it. Uh, and they may have even taken a meeting with him, hell uh, yes. or mixing it. You know, and I, it's like would have been interesting mm-hmm. to hear the hear the the <laughs> kick drum of the cowbell or whatever on it if he had been involved. But but yeah, so there's a couple little oddities like that, you know, as sometimes you get when you do the kind of deep research. But um. But uh, yeah, no, it's mm-hmm. a pretty, like I say, it's a pretty interesting story. And hopefully there's a few new morsels, you know, for even for fans, super fans of Wilco. Uh, now, so you uh, said it's not your favorite Wilco album. What is your favorite Wilco album? I mean, I, pro- I probably have to say being there, you know, uh, mm-hmm. just because of the association for me for that time. And I saw them mm-hmm. again quite a bit on that tour. Yep. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, but I, I'm a really... A, you know, I, I saw weirdly, I have a weird relationship going back. My cousin is from Alton, Illinois, which is just the next town over from Belleville. And I saw a version of Uncle Tupelo is probably the first whatever show, you know, other than like, you know, a big whatever concert at Disneyland I saw. I was, I think, 14. And my uncle took me to some kind of, or my cousin, not my uncle, took me to some kind of, it was some kind of street thing. I've, I, I've been meaning to ask the, the J- Jeff you know, if he remembers this, uh, mm-hmm. but I think it was, and, and some sort of St. Louis people, but it was some kind of like street event. They were playing pretty early on. And I saw them, of course, again, it was like the scene of the replacements on Saturday Night Live. I didn't really put it together. No, they were years <laughs> later. Right. I realized, Oh sure. shit, that's that right. band. Uh, so I, you know, so I have a very long <laughs> standing relationship mm-hmm. with, with Jeff, Jeff going back to, to early Tupelo. And then of course saw Tupelo uh, a couple of times, you know, when I was basically high school, early college, and then I've seen Wilco, you know, basically in every period since then. And, and I've done a lot of stuff uh, over the years. I did a big story when I was at the reader, when Ghosts Born is came out, I, mm-hmm. you know, I was basically went on the road with them and it's around the time that he had gone into, you know, rehab and recovery and all right. that sort of stuff stuff um so um so yeah i've i've and then i've done subsequent things multiple mojo interviews mm-hmm. with jeff and jeff and his mavis project maybe staples mm-hmm. so so yeah weirdly i've probably interviewed him more than anybody <laughs> in, over the course <laughs> of my life um and so yeah so it was, a, it was a real cool thing to be able to kind of get to do it for this record i think i think my buddy uh steve hyden got to do the liner notes for mm. for, for being there if i'm not mistaken so mm-hmm. uh, but uh, yeah he's a good dude so so yeah no was, but this was a really you know i think because this record obviously is you know, has its place in the pantheon, both for Wilco and in general. I think, you know, they really did this project upright. And obviously there's a couple iterations of it, but there's like an eight CD and 11. LP. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 it's a monster, but really cool. I think, uh, and a lot of what makes the package so cool is that, um, you know, they were, there's multiple records, you know, they, they were, their whole yeah. thing was to set up their loft studio so they could record anytime they wanted mm-hmm. to, because mm-hmm. I think they, the, the difficulty on Summer Teeth was they were having to record on the road and then come back and they didn't want to go back and, and do that again. So mm-hmm. that's really why they set up. So there's like so many hours of them recording and so many versions of the song, both with Ken, both with Glenn, a lot of the Ken stuff is on this for the first time uh, and different mixes and weird ideas. It was this kind of, we record everything we play and, and we write as we record and different mm-hmm. kind of songwriting experiments and all that's on this. So it's, it's really probably, I would have to say, I mean, I guess there's the Stooges fun house box set. Um, you know, the, the really big version of that where you kind of hear this whole record come to life. But I think in terms of like a, 
a creative scope of a life of an album and hearing this thing in so many different versions and like really experiencing um, a, a piece of art as it develops. This is going to be like, you know, up there, you know, with the kind of great packages, honestly. And I say that not just because I'm, yeah. because I'm, I'm not involved in the production or the <laughs> yeah, audience. Just, yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's just awesome <laughs> yeah. to, to like, Look, you know, it's just you very rare. It. <laughs> <laughs> but no, yeah. it's just, it's, it's just so rare, you know, that that situation occurs, you know, mm-hmm, where, yeah. where there's so much tape rolling and, right. and, and even like, you know, and, and there's mixes of stuff that was only on CDR that was made just for Glenn, you know, that, that existed mm-hmm. no other thing. And Glenn pulled that stuff out. So there's just, it's, nice. a, it's a really cool kind of, uh, you know, you're going to live the life of this record when you get the, get the deluxe set. Awesome. Well, I'll let you know when I'm done with it. A question about, uh, about the liner notes in, in regards sure. to, you know, talking with Jeff. I mean, he is, uh, very thoughtful, very well spoken. A huge music fan, a huge fan of music history. Yeah. But you know, over the years, he's very much been reluctant to talk about Jay Bennett. Yeah. Now he he seems to have loosened up a little bit here recently about it. But how did that go? You know, oh, obviously that was, that's something you're going to talk to him. About, yeah, so. yeah. No, that was huge, and understanding that and. Um, you know, I think he started talking a little bit more about it in his book that he, that he wrote a few years ago, but mm-hmm. even beyond that, we went way beyond what was in the book mm-hmm. and because I had to understand it. And again, I was coming, you know, cause I knew, I knew Jay personally, uh, you know, a, a good bit too, and knew people who knew him well, John Pines, who was an engineer in Champagne, who knew him, mm-hmm. Tommy Keen, yep. who was a good friend of mine who played, Jay played with him. So, so, you know, I had a, a, a I had an interest in understanding ending you know for good and bad you know uh, what jay's kind of good and bad i'm already starting to talk like i'm back <laughs> uh, uh, but um so i was trying to understand that and and of course yeah i have to approach jeff for that and i think that's where the benefit of time mm-hmm. and and knowing that i had a sensitivity and understanding of jay you could talk about that so i think you get a much clearer and more honest and also more emotional kind of response to that mm-hmm. and also what was going in on the band at the time and you know it's it's funny it's just like uh you know, the, as Jim Dickinson, uh, late great replacements producer, used to say, you know, the psychodynamics of making a record and being in a band, that's what he was interested in. And I find that that's what I'm interested in, too. You know, so to be able to kind of, you know, have uh, Jeff talk about that openly and honestly was a huge thing. And yeah, uh, and I think really the, the, the liner notes benefit from that, you know, kind of openness and reflection on his yeah. part. Yeah, I, well, I can't wait to read it. So thank you for for writing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's, um, it, it's certainly another parallel between Wilco and the, and the replacements with you know having to fire you know yeah. I- 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 integral members of the band for whatever reason you know whether yeah it's- no and 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 in, I mean in Wilco's case I mean in, in the replacements case Bob had his role and he was incredible and really his spirit tied the band in Jay's case particularly on this record he was doing so much so to untangle that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and to kind of have this whole sort of transformation of the record and the band, you know, and that's what the story is, is like, you know, once we, they start the record and the band is one thing and mm-hmm. the people in the band are, are, are different by the time you get to the other side of it. Right. And I think there's a whole story that people think that's about this or about that. But what I try and do is kind of go back to like the, you know, you tell a little bit of a lead up story and, mm-hmm. and also talk about the sort of creative thread that I talked about that was, you know, goes all the way back in Jeff's life uh, to, you know, even like uh, one thing that I hadn't read before, is, uh, or maybe it appeared somewhere. So he talked about, you know, kind of his dad was a ham radio operator, you know, and how that relates to a lot of the kind of, you know, the Conic Project stuff that threads through Yankee Hotel Fox, right? Just things like that, you know, mm-hmm. where it's like, 
I find that that, you know, as I do in my own life, when it comes to writing or reading or anything, it's like, you know, very rarely are there not some seeds or threads that go all the way back in our lives that don't sure. sort of mm-hmm. uh, come through into, right. into what we're doing today. And so right. I always think that's a, the, the most interesting part is, you know, and when you have access to an artist or time to write and the space mm-hmm. to write a story, I think that's where you have to dig because that's where a lot of the, 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 the kind of secret history of, 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 of bands and records are. Mm-hmm. So, awesome. Yeah. Great, great yep. point. Yep. Um, so we've, we've taken up a lot of your time. So I'll we're going to shift to some Chicago questions. Sure. Uh, oh having lived here, I'm very interested to hear your perspective yes. on this. Well, and now, in fairness, it's been 16 years. since. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it still counts, right? Yes. You still yes. live here. Yes. Um, thick versus thin crust pizza. Which one are you a bigger fan of? I guess I'd have to say thin, man. I could never get with the, with the thick crust, you know, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Uh, but, um, but yeah, so I'd have to say thin. All right. Did you have, did you have like a go-to spot when you lived here? Um, well, I used to go to, uh, God, what was the name of that place? It was right over by the facets video stores, an Italian place that we, I used to go to. It was more of an Italian restaurant. I used to get pizza and they had a kind of thin crust. It's more mm-hmm. Italian style, but I can't think of the name of that. Well, I mean, I love my Italian, you know, Las Gorilla, I used to go to, uh, you know, the, the Bari grocery over on Grand, mm-hmm. which yeah, I guess yeah. they used to do sandwiches. Now there's like some rivalry between them and the neighboring bakery. You, see, <laughs> you know, that's what, you know, you go back they to got places. Some beef. Yeah, yeah. You go, you go back to places, but I mean, the place I missed the most, obviously hot dogs, you know, I used to go there all the time. Yep. So yep. Kind of in my neighborhood. Um, mm-hmm. I gained a lot of weight in Chicago, actually. <laughs> still, trying to, still trying to shed. And then, uh, and then, and then I still love, you know, every time I go back, if I get a chance, I'll, I'll, um, I'll, uh, I'll go to super dog. You know, that's still kind of, Oh, mm-hmm. gotta do it. My favorite. Gotta do so. it. Yep. I tried to get my friend to go there who was in town recently, but he wanted Italian beef. So we went all the way out to Johnny's. Oh yeah. Like, yeah well, we'll take like the two hour journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> favorite venue to see a show in Chicago. I actually, weirdly enough, I had some good, what was the place over by the river? The uh, park, uh, park West park West, which was kind of interesting. Cause you remember, I think it was Oh five. Dylan played like four or five nights where he's playing the descending size venues. He played Aragon Riv. Uh, uh, Vic, and then he played Park West, and I saw Dylan there, and I saw Chuck Prophet there. I saw some uh, some oddly some good things mm. in there. I like Chubas, and but uh, you know the place I spent the most time out it was the Hideout, obviously. Yeah, um, and that was my favorite spot. But mm-hmm. I just loved all the neighborhood bars. I lived at the end of the time I lived in in Bucktown a little bit, and uh, and that was great. There was just so many cool bars in the corners. But yeah, I mean Hideout is just such a magical yeah. place. And when I came back and I did my book reading, I did it at the Hideout. You know, obviously, yeah, yeah, and I know yeah. Kate, Katie and Tim real well, and um, mm-hmm. the uh, the other partners, uh, uh, Ick and Emmer. I used to live in their yep. one of their places, so so I had a pretty close ties <laughs> with the Hideout. You know, when I was there, and, and uh, so that's my favorite venue. You know, as a smaller venue, and and I saw some great things there. You know, the and, and the festivals they would do at the mm-hmm. time, but. But yeah, weirdly, I guess the unexpected place was I saw a lot of really good things at the Park West, including that Dylan show, which is obviously the smallest mm-hmm. place I've ever seen Bob Dylan play. I don't know what the cap was, like nine, 900 or 1,000. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. yeah, I was at your uh, uh, hideout book tour oh. uh, speak, speaking engagement. It was awesome. Yes. Cool. Thank you. Thank yes. you. Yeah, we showed yes. some, actually showed some footage of the of the uh, Grant Park, that final Grant Park show, mm-hmm. yep. which was kind of like a cool thing which i you know probably yes. shouldn't have done but i did there <laughs> just for the chicago people so yes it yeah. was great 
Um, so you've you've obviously written about Wilco, a Chicago band. <laughs> you've written about the replacements who had some ties to Chicago. You lived in Chicago and wrote about music here. What makes Chicago a unique music town to you? Well, I mean, the time I was there is it, it, there was a lot going on. I mean, it probably you know it was. I mean, I, I was there in the whatever golden years of 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 the kind of you know exile in Guyville kind of era stuff, mm-hmm. but nineties, but, you know, I got there and really started hanging out in 0203 and was worked there till 06. Um, and I don't know. I just always thought, I think the, the, at the time, the, the label infrastructure there, you know, drag city, thrill jockey, mm-hmm. Pravda, all that, you know, I'm just to start, uh, you know, touch and go was, you know, still going then. Like that was a, mm-hmm. it was a pretty incredible infrastructure. And then the booking agents that were there and that, that came out of there, Tom Windish. And like, you know, there was a lot of uh, people who were, you know, whatever, uh, small business, self-starter, you know, created kind of yes. empires, <laughs> you know, in Chicago um, and, and doing it their own way and never really being about chasing trends or chasing. They always did this stuff. I mean, Drag City, um, you know, I still just have an incredible respect for Drag City and Dan and Ryan. And I actually just recently mm-hmm. was in Austin doing an interview with Bill Callahan, you know, a, a oh, smog. Was Bill there. Yeah. So, so I just, and we were kind of talking about some Chicago stuff that I had thought about in a while. So, yeah, I mean, it, and of course, you know, the people who ended up in Chicago, I mean, Sally, Tim's and John Langford are two of my mm-hmm. favorite people in the world yep. and good friends and like, and the 11th Dream Day, those guys. Yep. And I, I was just always thought like there was some incredible kind of lifers, both in terms of people who mm-hmm. were in the business and running labels and making music and, you know, yeah. the, the kind of longevity of, uh, of the people st- doing great stuff. I mean, you know, yeah. the last 11th Dream Day record is, is amazing. Yeah. Or, so, or, yeah. you know, the last Mekons record. So I think I, that was the thing that I think makes Chicago such a great town is just the, the doing art for our sake largely and, and, persevering over time and kind of refining mm-hmm. your getting better at what you do, which is what a lot of the, the, the labels and, and music people and bands and artists certainly do there. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there, the, 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 those people are also, you know, down to earth, salt of the earth kind of people, you know, I mean, yeah. Midwest. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Even the, yeah, English, even if, even, even if they come from England. Yeah. Even if they come from England. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're salt of the earth. No one's saltier than, than, than Sally, so. <laughs> anyway. exactly. Yes. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, I can talk. Hey, uh, what have you been listening to lately? Anything good? Um, well, oh, I've been listening to, that stuff. I have been listening to a lot of smog uh, just cause I was, you know, prepping for that interview, mm-hmm. uh, the new, the new Bill Callahan album, which comes out, I think in October. Reality. I'm very intrigued by that. It's supposed yeah. to be listened to in one sitting, right? Yeah. I mean, it's a fantastic record. I mean, you could listen to it probably in multiples. It's, uh, but it's, it's, it's a really, his voice sounds better than it ever has. Uh, I know they did. He was saying they did a kind of cool miking trick on his voice, you know, uh, from like New York era Lou Reed. So, uh, you know, he's another guy who's like, I think, Again, uh, even though he's not hasn't been in Chicago for a long time, he's been in Austin the last twenty years. A typical Chicago guy, in that he keeps getting better at what he does, and that his best work has come, you know, in the last fifteen years, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, so that that's probably the thing I've been listening to most recently uh, in terms of uh, in terms of uh, you know kind of new things that are kind of exciting, and some, somewhat related. I'm I'm excited to dig into the Wilco box when it comes, kind of listen to it, you know, uh, uh, more. You know, I listen to it kind of in prep and in context mm-hmm. of the thing, but to just sit down with it in one kind of piece and, and enjoy it. And um, I'm trying to think what else. Um, man. Well, I've been listening to my wife. She's a musician. I've been listening to some of her demos. Nice. She's, yeah. She was in a band called The Ets and then put out a solo record on Merge. And she's uh, partners with Greg. Uh, 
Greg Cartwright and the Raining Sound, and they have a band together called The Party and Gifts, and they're going to be doing another record this year. So I've been hearing some bits and pieces of that. So that's <laughs> kind of been in been in my world as well. And and uh, and yeah, so so yeah, kind of. I'm always listening to a lot of stuff for work, so sort of like the pleasure stuff gets squeezed out a little bit. And and when it comes to pleasure, <laughs> then I'm listening to old favorites or whatever. But uh, but yeah, really, really, really digging the new Callahan record. I think people are going to be excited about that. Too. I can't wait. Gold yep. record was so good. Yep. yep. Yeah, I'm excited. Uh. Last question. Oh, we've, I lied. We have two more questions, but Sorry. this one's my favorite, which is, uh, and, and Papa quoted it to me earlier uh, yeah. about cheap drinks. We are huge fans of cheap drinks here. He's, you know, I'm drinking, so, I, I am drinking Wilco's uh, beer <laughs> that they put out. Yes. Jesus, don't cry. But in the book, you quoted, um, um, uh, you wrote, they drank uh, cheap domestic brew Mickey's Big Mouth from Hum's Liquor Store. That so, was early on. Yeah. I think they were, you know, when they had a decent rider, it was Heineken, uh-huh. uh, you know, later in the major uh-huh. or Grolsch, uh, you know, when they're oh, in yeah. Europe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh-huh. You know, I mean, out there, uh, you know, and then I think they were drinking, you know, liquor drinks. They were drinking, you know, Singapore slings or uh, screwdrivers sometimes. I don't know. I, I think they probably drank anything they get their hands right, on right, yeah, in right, the right. early years uh, in terms of cheap beers. Um, well, sorry, what was the question? Was it what they the drank? Is, or, what's your go-to? Well, oh, what's yeah, your go-to yes, cheap drink? Yes, yes. Go-to cheap drink. Well, fortunately, I, I, you're I rolling into Shubas. What are you asking for? Man, I can't remember what I was drinking. I guess Rolling Rock was a was there was a period. Uh, yes. drink, drink a lot of Rolling Rock. Uh, uh-huh. But I think actually once I got to Chicago, um, my cheap my super cheap drink days were behind me. But um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean if I drink something cheap, I, I guess it's Rolling Rock. I don't know. Is, is anything cheap anymore? Depends where you go. Pretty cheap. Yeah, yeah PBR. Is. I mean, I would have PBRs you know, occasionally, but now I'm an old man. So if I drink, it's, it's usually just like a nice beer. Although I still just like <laughs> lagers. It'll be like, you know, whatever Stella or Peroni or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, although there's this really amazing uh, German lager that I've discovered. I can't remember the name of it. They only, it's non-filtered and they do it in like four pack cans. It's unbelievable. Or I'll drink, you know, somewhat decent bourbon. I, I, I there was a time where I mm-hmm. drank, you know, anything and everything but those days are long <laughs> yeah. so, right i think unfortunately i'm still there yeah uh, <laughs> well sh- chicago is nice because there are still lots of places you can go in and get like a three or four dollar pbr oh so, yeah. yeah yeah i mean that i definitely do miss that i miss yeah. you know short short glasses of beer and uh you know corner taverns and stuff like that mm-hmm. you know anyway any, that's the i mean chicago is really kind of magic for that like that, yes. that is the thing i really do miss yeah. the most yeah yeah awesome agree more and, and uh, so is, actually but you know so is minneapolis and 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 detroit for that matter that's a midwest <laughs> thing you know you know neighborhood taverns really are a, 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 the, the greatest thing mm-hmm. about the midwest so. right uh yes. so we'd be remiss if we didn't ask you on the way out of here uh what are if anything are you working on right now um, well, I'm doing a lot of stuff. I mean, I'm just have my daily gig uh, at the paper in Memphis covering music stuff. And that's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, kind of the regular gig I'm working on. I just, uh, obviously the Wilco thing is coming out. I just did some liner notes for, um, a little feet box set that came out, wow. um, earlier this Hell year. Yeah. yeah. So waiting for Columbus, their very famous live album came mm-hmm. out in 77, 78 or whatever. And, uh, this is like multiple shows from, from that set of recordings that they did. And I did a kind of world history for that. Um, and then, of course, uh, earlier this year, actually, there was a record store day release of the Bleeding Hearts, which was Bob Stinson's last band that he had in Minneapolis with a guy named Mike Leonard, kind of stones. That kind of-
kind of replacements he actually um and i did the liner notes for that that was a record store day thing um and so yeah so this year i've had a bunch of that stuff you know uh, uh, the the bleeding arts and also the, there was a, also a record store day break out of our plate of our uh sorry ma uh, don't forget i forgot to take out mm-hmm. the trash uh, mm-hmm. box, right. box set so i had some liner notes. So i've had four or five liner notes things come out this year mm-hmm. uh and and then i've been working on mojo stuff uh, i do a lot of their um what they call the Mojo interview, which is a big six-page Q and A format. I did mm-hmm. uh, Bonnie Raid. I did one with Jim Keltner where I was out in LA. Did Bill Callahan. I'm going to do another one here coming up pretty soon out in LA too. So those are kind of my favorite things where I get to dig in and hang out with the people and awesome. uh, wait, waiting to see what's next in terms of the book. I, you know, the replacements are a, a hard act to follow. So I haven't <laughs> quite figured out a, a, a new book topic, but I got a couple uh-huh. of things that I'm sort of kind of kicking around. But uh, but you know the the replacement train has just kind of kept going these last five, six years. So I haven't had a chance to sort of get off. So I might have mm-hmm. to jump off at some point, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so I've just been kind of busy myself with my, with my mojo stuff and I've been working for them actually this year will be 20 years. So, so nice. man, and I love, and I love that stuff for them. So yeah, yeah. So, so that's kind of what's been keeping me busy. Well, we love to hear it Yeah. Uh, again. Love, 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 love trouble boys. Appreciate yeah, it, man. You know, we, we've yes. just, we've everybody go out and buy it. Yes, please. Yes, well, I was very excited to read the the liner notes for Yankee mm-hmm. Hotel Foxtrot. When I mm-hmm. when I read, like, obviously I was going to buy it no matter what because I, I have a problem. And then I read that <laughs> you were reading the liner notes. I was like, okay, this is the best of both worlds. It's be yeah. Awesome. Win-win. Yes. Yep. Perfect combination. Yep. Like peanut so, butter and chocolate. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, well, yeah, no, from cool. Memphis, peanut butter and banana sandwich. <laughs> banana, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> Uh, well, I appreciate it, guys. And thanks yep. for having me. And yeah, yep. and thanks for reading the book and all the nice stuff. And uh, and yeah, like I say, the, the Wilco uh, Yankee Hotel Fox Trot box set will be out later this month if people want to order that. So, uh, and if people want to check out anything about the book, you can go to replacements book or bobmayer.com. So, excellent. Oh, yeah. Thank right. you so much for your time, Bob. Take care. Yep. Thanks, thanks, guys. Thanks so much for listening today. We are no wristbands, we drink for free. Music, of course, has been provided by Merlin Wall. Please check them out on Spotify or on Bandcamp. Please also subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And give us a follow on Instagram and Twitter at No Wristbands and check out our website at noriskbands.com. 